Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Abby Phillip, and thank you for joining me tonight. Right now, there are five people on board a vessel bound for the wreckage of the Titanic, and they are trapped inside a space that is just the size of a minivan with only 31 hours of air left to breathe. That is the estimate from the U.S. Coast Guard on the missing sub in the North Atlantic right now. As time is running out, oxygen is dwindling on the Titan submersible. And rescuers are racing against time, literally around the clock, to try to find that vessel before it is too late. And in just moments, you're going to hear from a reporter who was on that very same submarine just last year. And he interviewed the founder of OceanGate, the company that owns it, who is also among the missing. Just listen to what Stockton Rush told him at the time about the lack of sophistication in the technology that is on board. We can use these off-the-shelf components. I got these from uh, Camper World. We run the whole thing with this game controller. (laughs) Come on! And you are also about to hear from a friend of a different passenger who received an eerie last text message before setting out on this journey. The sub lost contact on Sunday. And as of this afternoon, the Coast Guard said search efforts so far have yielded no results. Canada has sent additional vessels to assist in that search. But this is an extremely complex mission. That search area is about 10,000 square miles and more than two miles deep. For context, the deepest human scuba diver ever stands at more than 1,000 feet. At more than 3,000 feet, light is no longer even visible in the ocean. And the Titanic, well, that rests way below that, nearly 13,000 feet below sea levels. Weather conditions could also be a complicating factor in all of this, not to mention the condition of that submersible and whether it has working equipment that could even get detected. And our first guest witnessed the red flags on that vessel firsthand. I want to bring in David Pogue. He's the host of the Unsung Science podcast and CBS Sunday Morning Correspondent. David, uh, this video of you showing really the insides and interior workings of this vessel basically went viral. Given what you have seen, the seemingly kind of jerry-rigged components of it all, are you surprised that it is now lost? I actually see these as two totally different things because Stockton Rush's answer to that question uh, you haven't seen yet, which is where he said all these little things like the lights and the controller and the thrusters, those can break and you'll be fine. The part we put all our attention and care into is the passenger compartment that contains the air, the carbon fiber cylinder. And that we worked with NASA, we worked with Boeing, that, he said, is, is buttoned down and solid. So I, I don't think the, the fact that some of these things are kind of MacGyvered together is necessarily an indication of a general sloppiness. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that we're learning is that this vessel is really supposed to float back to the surface, especially if something goes wrong. When you were on board and you actually kind of started a, a mission and had to come back up, did they disclose to you what the contingency plans are if something goes wrong? There aren't very many things that can go wrong that you can do anything about, right? So fire is something they addressed extensively. They they showed us where the fire extinguisher was. They have uh, a smoke mask for each passenger. We had to practice putting those on. But beyond that, what can you do if, if the sub gets trapped, if the sub develops a leak, if the sub goes without power? All of the things that can happen beyond that, the answer is the same thing, get to the surface. And they had so many different ways of getting to the surface. They can drop sandbags, they can drop lead pipes, they, they can drop the legs off the bottom. They have an air balloon that pulls them up. They can use their thrusters. And as you mentioned, one of these seven different methods is a dead man switch. That is, mm. it will send you to the surface even if everyone on board has passed out. It's a time-release sandbag system that slowly dissolves the connectors underneath the sub and lets them drop off after a certain number of hours. And you go to the surface even if you're not awake. So you were on this vessel, right? I, I wonder, first of all, if you were scared to go down there. But also, were you told what to do in the event of something going wrong? Because my understanding on the, the passenger list are some people including the CEO, who have a lot of experience with this vessel, and perhaps some people wow. who are more kind of tourists, like, like you were. Um, again, the only briefing that I remember getting on the sub is about fire. Um, beyond that, there, there just isn't anything we could do. I mean, if a giant octopus wraps its tentacles around, what are you going to do? So uh, I have to say there wasn't a lot of emergency preparedness. But even the most prepared person in the world could not do anything in this situation if, A, the sub imploded, B, it got snagged on something underneath, or C, it's currently floating somewhere on the surface with the power gone and they can't reach anybody. Those are, the, as I see it, those are the only three possibilities right now. So do you think that it is still possible to rescue this vessel? And if so, how difficult would that be? I, my belief is that if it is in the water, underwater, I, I don't understand how it's, it's even conceivable. There, there are only a handful of submersibles in the world that can go to those depths, and none of them are ready to get there within the next 24 hours. And even if they could, first they have to find it, which is unbelievably difficult on the seafloor where there's no light. Secondly, what would you do if you did find it? These are submersibles. These are not submarines. These are low-powered things that need a ship to carry them from place to place. They could not tow the thing up to the surface. So suppose they find it on the seafloor in five minutes. Then what? I, I just don't understand. Yeah what technology could get them back up. And the New York Times is reporting that industry leaders, they've questioned the safety concerns about the submersible. And they were saying that a lot of the components, the approach was experimental. Did, do you see what they're talking about here? Yes. 
um, and this was a big focus of my conversations with Stockton Rush, the CEO and the designer. And it is true that the stuff he did is not how people do it. I mean, mm. nobody has used carbon fiber to make a submersible like this before. Nobody has built a submersible that holds five people. The, the, the others all hold two or maybe three, but no one's done five. Um, he uses all kinds of new techniques and he admits that he has critics. He says all these fuddy-duddies stuck in the 1950s way of doing things, they're crazy. How are you ever going to make progress unless you experiment? He was emphatic that his ways were better, that they represent an improvement, and that they were safe. Well, it continues to be everyone's hope that there is a miracle here, but it's a really tragic situation. David Pogue, thank you. It's good to have you on this. Thank you. And let's get straight to Colonel Terry Virts. He is a retired NASA astronaut and a friend of Hamish Harding, who is one of the missing aboard that submersible. Colonel Virts, thank you for joining us. You were texting with your friend shortly before he went underwater. What did you all say to each other and what was his mood like before going down there? Well, he was very excited. Uh, It was just a quick text. We're diving on Titanic today. He was exclamation point. He was excited about it. Uh, it was just a few hours before he went. So um, I'm, I'm sure the whole crew, would, I, I would be excited if I knew I was going down to Titanic. So it was definitely a positive mood on Sunday, early Sunday morning. Did he ever discuss with you, do you have the sense that he understood what the risks were? We were just talking to David Pogue just a moment ago about just how experimental so much of this technology was. Well, I, I heard what he was saying, and I agree that the most important thing is the pressure vessel. I mean, if they're using a uh, off-the-shelf controller, that's fine. Um, that's probably more reliable and more tested than if you just built one by itself. And so the really important thing is that that pressure vessel holds. The one thing that I think uh, that I'll say it, in um, in the good column is that we haven't heard any bad news yet. They haven't found debris floating. The sonars haven't detected a crushing sound or whatever. So what Mr. Pogue was saying, the options uh, it, it seems to me likely, but I, you know, you can't say for sure. It seems like they must be stuck. And mm-hmm. if they're stuck, if one of the ROVs can nudge it, can somehow get it unstuck, you would think it, it should be able to get to the top because it has so many different ways. All it has to do is get rid of some weight and then it's going straight to the top. And even if they're trying to get to the top, if they're st- snagged on something, they won't be able to. And there is an, R- there, an ROV showed up this morning, a uh, remote operated vehicle, one of these underwater sub drones. Uh, so there's a there's been a, a drone looking for it today since this morning, and there's another one arriving soon, I think. So um, it's not as though there are none of these underwater sub drones available. They they are there. They need to get there soon because you know the time the clock is ticking for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard you say just a moment ago that the video game controller is probably more reliable. I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear you say that, especially uh, as an astronaut yourself. I mean that. A commercial video game controller would be trusted enough to take someone two two miles under the water to these kinds of depths? Well, no. The pressure vessel is trusted to take the people to two miles of depth. And that's where the pressure vessel is where they put their engineering stuff. Uh, the, the I, I don't know. I'm not a submarine designer, and I certainly don't want to debate that here. Uh, but the, the argument of using off-the-shelf components... Um, you know, Elon Musk's used off-the-shelf off computers on his SpaceX Dragon capsules, and they give faults a lot because they're not radiation-hardened. 
uh, and they realize that those faults just don't ever hurt anybody. So it's not worth the extra expense of radiation hardening that. So that's a design philosophy that's pretty common, I think, in the world today to use off the shelf where it's not critical. I don't know if they did or didn't do that. I can't vouch for any of their safety. Um, but the, the pressure vessel is definitely the most important thing. Yeah. So you've been trained to be in these kinds of confined spaces for long periods of time. Tell us what it's like, what it might be like for the people in that submersible right now. Well, there's so many things. The first thing is that there's no light like we just heard. It, it is pitch black down there. So hopefully they have some flashlights or but, you know, I don't know how long those batteries are going to last. Uh, the second thing is it's cold. The water is about freezing. So if the heater lat works, then that's OK. But other than that, you've got body heat only and it's going to be cold in there. And then the third thing is the oxygen is getting low. I assume the carbon dioxide is going to build and carbon dioxide um, gives you a headache. It, it makes you dizzy and it, it increases your heart rate. We had a situation on the space shuttle where our, our CO2 levels got really high and everybody noticed that immediately we all started feeling our CO2 symptoms. So all of that's going on in the context of they don't know if they're going to get rescued. So it's a very psychologically stressful time. And that's why somebody like my friend Hamish, who's a pilot, he's done a lot of different exploration missions. Um, he's going to be able to keep the crew safe um, yeah. or keep the crew calm, you know, help, help everybody stay calm and not hopefully not freak out. <laughs> You've also been in touch with Hamish's family. How are they doing? What are they doing right now? Yeah, they're waiting. It's an incredibly stressful time. They're all they're doing well. They're able to be together and they they mostly just want to stay out of the view of the press and um, wait and see. But like I said, you know, the good news is that we haven't had the bad news. And and as long as that's true, we've got this armada of Coast Guard and Navy and Canadian and private company airplanes and surface vessels and underwater vessels so I think that if they can be rescued, they will. But it's a they're in a they're in a very tough situation. There's no doubt. Absolutely right about that, Colonel Terry Verts. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for sharing the story. It's an important story. So thank, keep it up, please. Of course. And we have lots of other big news tonight. President Biden's son, Hunter, strikes a deal with the federal prosecutors after years of investigations. And no surprise, Republicans are pushing back fiercely. Plus. Did Donald Trump just hand the special counsel or the special prosecutor a gift? And that is his own admission that he took classified materials and wouldn't give them back. Why not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. And there is much more from what some are calling an incriminating interview up ahead. President Biden's son has struck a deal and Republicans are furious now tonight. After five years of investigations, Hunter Biden will plead guilty to a few tax misdemeanors and a plea with prosecutors to resolve a felony gun charge. The Justice Department is recommending probation, but the judge will ultimately decide what that sentence actually is. Now, President Biden has mostly ignored questions on this today. Instead, this is all he has said. I'm very proud of my son. Many Republicans are now angry with what they are calling a sweetheart deal. Listen. It continues to show the two-tier system in America. 
if you are the president's leading political opponent, the DOJ tries to literally put you in jail and give you prison time. If you are the president's son, you get a sweetheart deal. This DOJ continues to hunt Republicans and protect Democrats. I can't think of anything more blatant. Let's bring in CNN's chief legal analyst, Laura Coates, Bradley Moss, a national security attorney and Republican strategist, Rena Shaw. So I noticed there in the comments from Tim Scott and from uh, the speaker that there's not a whole lot of specifics because I think some of the details really uh, cut against what they're arguing. I mean, this is a Republican appointed prosecutor. It's spanned two administrations, a Republican and a Democratic one. And frankly, it took five years. So is this a sweetheart deal? No, it's not. And one of the reasons you don't have a lot of the facts and the specifics is because it would belie the truth. Now, look, I'm the first to tell you, we do have a system where the haves and the have-nots are treated differently in our American justice system. It's often called a legal system for that very reason. But in an instance like this, you've got somebody who was kept over from one administration to the next to avoid even the hint of impropriety, to ensure that no one had the ability to have an actual foundational talking point. Now, they have it nonetheless, but the fact that this is after a very wide net has been cast, this is what the result is. The tax evasion, very serious crime still. The fact that it's really a a now president, former vice president's son or child, also monumental, but in the grand scheme of things, this is a probationary-related offense and a misdemeanor. The gun charge, a little bit more perplexing, because the overwhelming of cases involving when somebody cannot have a gun as a quote-unquote prohibited person involves somebody who is a felon in possession. This is not that instance. And nevertheless, he has this charge that will likely go away if he has his pre-diversionary program. Yeah, I mean, do you think that... Uh the fact that there, what, there is a Republican holdover prosecutor in this case should factor into how this is playing out in the political sphere? You would think so. But here were the goalposts, and here's where they've been shifted to. The Republicans had built this up as this big, huge scandal that was going to take down Hunter Biden, not just on tax issues and the firearm, but this was going to come after his father. This was going to be bribery, money laundering, all kinds of things. They've been building this up for years And this is what they got out of it. Their base was expecting something more. So they have to make a big deal of it. It has to be that it was a sweetheart deal. It has to be there was some conspiracy to give him, you know, cut him some slack where Donald Trump didn't get any for holding on to classified documents. It's nonsense. But those are the talking points they had to use. But the base got what it wanted. (laughs) The base wanted some really, really salacious stuff. And when you talk about tax evasion and weapons, man, that's some tabloid fodder. I mean, do you really (laughs) think this is the most, but I mean, really, is this the most salacious? It's certainly not what they were hoping for. You know, I think it's just so historic that we have a president's son charged with crimes. It just feels different. And so Republicans are going to move with this. They're going to say, look, we were right for years. And right-wing conspiracy theory, those circles, they were always saying, hashtag Biden crime family. And many of us were saying, hey, 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 that's too far. Today, it kind of feels like Republicans were right. So we're, we're- I'm, I'm sorry, on that point, though, the net was cast widely to include Burisma, right? Sure. The subject matter of the very first impeachment proceeding, um, the entire Biden family. Listen, I'm, I'm neutral as it relates to whether there's an actual charge coming down. But on the grand scheme of things, the idea of Maybe it's the context. We are now a nation where the historic impeachments and indictments are very different for even former presidents. But to suggest that this is somehow as as humongous as you're suggesting seems disingenuous. The idea that this this is the result? I I think 
in essence, what we're looking at here is a moment in which we're going to start to see parallels drawn where there shouldn't be any. There's going to be talk of what about Trump's children? What about Chelsea Clinton and the Clinton gold militiaship? Excuse me if I can get that out. Uh, you know, <laughs> that urge to draw parallels here is going to be great. And I, I agree with you. This isn't that massive. On a personal level, I don't think so. But on the other hand, I see Republicans getting the boon that they wanted, an ability to move forward and cast Biden as somebody that we should have questions about. Well, I, I mean, look, I, there are questions and then there are facts, right? right? I mean, and right now there are just not the facts to substantiate that. I think it also doesn't help that Hunter Biden paid the tax money back. I, I do want to play this from Bill Barr uh, earlier today responding to the charges that came out. These charges, frankly, could have been brought within the first few months after I became attorney general. I don't see, you know, I don't see why we've waited five years if this is uh, all there is if to this it. Is this is honestly the thing that it perplexes me the most. It, this started in 2018 under Trump. Uh, they were really looking for significant things, I would assume. Why did it take five years to get to this point? It sounds, hold on if you've heard this before, it sounds like weaponization. It sounds like they were doing everything they could to try to take down the likely a political opponent, just like we ended up seeing with impeachment number one. The goal was you get something on honor and you use that to take down his father. You did that through Ukraine and Burisma. Everything that has come out of what we've seen with the Republican attacks on the Biden crime family, it's all projection. They see what Trump did. They saw the tax crimes his company got convicted on. They said, oh, we'll just project it all on to Joe Biden. So far, it's not landing on the president himself. Hunter Biden's not in the White House. Hunter Biden's not going down for money laundering or anything like that. It's nothing tied to his father, at least for now. This is all Hunter Biden's minor tax, uh, tax issues, which are crimes. But that's all it is right now. I see it differently in the sense of the, the length of time. Maybe I'm giving a benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. in terms of the amount of time. Investigations do take a great deal of time. I'm not saying five years is anywhere near the realm of possibility. But when you're talking about transition between different teams and administrations, and the idea of who to give marching orders, although Attorney General Garland has said he's not going to be in control of this whatsoever for that very reason. But the complexity of the net, if they were simply looking at taxation, I would say, well, this is unbelievably long. But the net was cast for over a decade of business dealings, including an energy tycoon in China. Of course, Burisma, again, I mentioned. And with a net so wide and so thorough, it seemed to, over that period of time, that's why I think people should feel very um, well in support of and confident of the outcome, that it was comprehensive. And that's why it undermines a talking point. And I hear you on that. In the court of public opinion, what we're going to see is people having mixed minds. On the one hand, this is a good thing. Hunter's being held accountable. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody's above the law in this country. It's a beautiful thing. But on the other hand, it's like, man, he did the crime. Shouldn't he do the time? And that's in the mind of the average voter leaving the door open about if Hunter did this, if Hunter can do the crimes, what did the father know? Even though this is a man we're talking about, adult son and the father shouldn't have responsibility for it. It does draw the I, question. I think we'll, okay, we will see about that. I, I'm not sure that the average American expects that the president would be involved in whether Hunter Biden paid his taxes or not. But stand by, everyone. <laughs> also today, the judge of the Trump's documents indictment just set a surprising trial date for that case, as the former president may have just given prosecutors another tape of evidence. Why his admission on TV could cost him his former lawyer joins me next on that. It may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se.
Donald Trump is once again trying to explain why he kept classified documents. And his new excuses are raising some eyebrows. Some say his latest television interview gives prosecutors even more ammunition. Right now, as a tentative court date is now on the books, Laura Coates is, of course, back with us to help walk us through all of this. So, Laura, let's just start with the possibility here that Trump admitted in this interview uh, with Fox to obstruction. Can prosecutors use what he said there as part of this case? Whatever you say can and use be is against you in a court of law. Prosecutors are likely salivating at this moment in time, thinking, gosh, how many more conversations would you like to have, former president? Because we're cataloging every single thing you're saying, including this statement when he made to Brett Baer just last night. Why not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Very busy, he's suggesting. But the question, of course, he asked after that is, then why don't you just give them back? His answer actually contemplates that he was, in fact, in possession, knew that he had the documents, and was aware that they were wanted to give them back, and he failed to actually return them. That's essentially admitting that you knew that you were in possession of what they wanted you to return, Abby. So, Laura, we have up until this point heard quite a lot of different defenses for why mm-hmm. Trump had these documents in the first place. But actually, he may have floated a new one last night. He did. And this one's kind of surprising because, remember, we had first heard the reporting about this conversation that was recorded. What was he waving around in reaction to General Mark Milley? What was it he wanted people to hear about? Was there a shaping of a political narrative in response to what he was seeing and hearing about in the news? And he addressed that audio recording that happened in Bedminster, this time talking about, no, 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 no. What I was waving around, Abby, wasn't actually a document, like a classified one. No, what I was waving around were articles, newspapers, et cetera. Listen to this. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. And of course, you think about that statement in contrast to what he said in a recent Fox News town hall saying he had no idea anything about an audio recording or in Bedminster. I mean, listen to this contrasting statement. There's a special counsel that's appointed and news broke yesterday that there might be a tape recording that, quote, where you acknowledge that you understood that these were classified documents. First of all, do you know who this call may be with? Do you know anything about it? No, I don't know anything about it. All I know is this. Everything I did was right. We have the Presidential Records Act, which I abided by 100 percent. Well, here's what the prosecutors likely know. The other people who were in the room when it happened at the time that he was waving whatever he was waving around, it affords an opportunity to add to the witness list. And remember, the court has already said in, in, in Miami, I want to have a copy for the defendant of who might be on the witness list. Witness, he may have added to that very notion just now, Abby, by saying those statements and saying, well, hold on, let's either buttress the prosecution's case about what actually he was waving around or undermine his own credibility of people who might be eyewitnesses to this very point. And now you've got this credibility question before any potential jury. Was he lying then? Was he lying now? And what do the tapes say?
Yeah, and, and certainly the witnesses in that room would be very key to all of this. So, Laura, don't go anywhere. Stand by for us. I do want to now bring in Trump's former attorney, Tim Parlatore, who's here. So, Tim, uh, as Chris Christie said, some of his lawyers might be trying to jump out of a window after this <laughs> interview. I don't know if, as a former attorney, you're one of them. But I, I wonder, given what you just heard him say, admitting to, he held onto the boxes in spite of a grand jury subpoena, was he admitting basically obstruction there? It's difficult to know. This is one of the reasons why we always advise our clients, don't talk about the case. You have the right to remain silent, use it. Let your attorneys talk about it. Uh, You know, I I look at the answer that he gave there and he says, yeah, I didn't want to give it back to NARA yet. You know, so was he actually possibly mixing up the question and talking about, you know, the first set of boxes before the subpoena? But here's the problem. Putting that statement out there with that question, yes, the prosecutors can absolutely use that. And even if he meant that he was talking about the narrow requests as opposed to the subpoena requests, that's going to be very difficult at trial. He may, how are you going to overcome that? Are you going to cross-examine Brett Baer on, you know, what what do you think he meant? Or are you going to put Donald Trump on the stand to say, you know, would you like to clarify it? it right, it's right. a it's a difficult situation. Because he would be in a position to clarify his own statements, but then he would have to testify. But, I mean, you raise right. a very important question. When you were on his legal team, what was the advice about speaking publicly? I mean, this is Donald Trump. He likes to be his own spokesperson. Well, ethically, I can't talk about the specific advice that we gave to this client. What I can tell you is that as a general practice, I always tell all of my clients, don't talk about the case. Does this work with Trump? I've had two clients that have talked about the case anyway. He's one of them. Ice-T was the other. <laughs> Ice-T was, okay. It worked out to his benefit, All right, though. so he, he, also, um, he also suggested that the FBI was stuffing the boxes with classified documents. Have you seen any evidence that would have supported that? I haven't seen any evidence of that. Uh, you know, I've, I've obviously gone through all the boxes that were sent back to NARA way back in the beginning, the uh, the first 15 boxes. And so I saw how the classified documents or the, you know, the marked documents were mixed in on those. Um, we never got to see what the boxes looked like that were taken during the raid. Uh, we never got to you know, get an inventory of that to be able to kind of compare and contrast that. So um, whether they did or they didn't, I'm not going to opine because I didn't see anything either way. So Judge Cannon today set a trial date for mid-August. That was a surprise to a lot of people. Do you expect that pretrial motions will inevitably push that back? Absolutely. That's that's kind of a standard thing. So some judges, they do like to set trial dates. Some, you know, don't bother because they know that it's a fake date anyway, Um, to use an overused term of fake. What they do is, you know, they'll set a trial date, you know, Judge Cannon set a trial date based on the speedy trial clock. But that clock stops for any number of reasons. And so as soon as they file motions, the clock's going to stop. So given how complicated this case could be, the government, you know, a lot of times with these national security cases, they don't have an interest in wanting it to be dragged out in public. But in this case, you have a candidate a defendant who is a candidate who may also not want to have that happen. Is it in Trump's best interest right now to consider a plea? Right now, before having the benefit of the discovery, I don't think so. I think that he needs to see what the actual discovery is so that he can make a better uh, informed decision. Yeah, and I, I know that you know this particular client is not interested in, in any plea. However, 
as a general proposition, unless the client comes to me and says, hey, look, Tim, this is what I did. <laughs> you know, yeah. give me the best possible deal. Um, you really do have to see what the government has you know, to be able to make a better uh, determination of it. You know, for example, if you look at this um, Bedminster, you know, the Milley document, reading the indictment, it appears that no document was ever found. And so it's the kind of thing where you would want to go through discovery and see, you know, was a document found? Were any of the other people in the room claiming that he had a document with him? But, but I mean, that's not the only piece of evidence they have. And I mean, you've sure. read the indictment as well. well. I'm just using that as an example. Sure, sure. Absolutely. I, I just wonder, though, given the, the volume of potential evidence that they might have, uh, if, if Donald Trump were the type to consider a plea deal, would you advise him to at least consider that as a possibility? I always advise every single one of my clients you know, to at least consider it. I mean, it'd be unethical for me not to uh, at least raise the possibility. Uh, ultimately, you know, especially with a client who believes in their innocence, that's not a likely uh, scenario. Uh, however, at the end of the day, the decision of whether to plea is a very personal decision to the client because it's all about their personal appetite for risk. Yeah. yeah. You know, whatever I recommend to them, at the end of the trial, I'm going home. Are his lawyers now bound by some of the things that he said to Brett Bayer yesterday? I don't know that I would say bound by it so much as they have to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it is something you know, that is admissible in court. It is something that they will, you know, have to, you know, listen to, play it in front of the jury. And so whether they're going to be bound to that as their theory or whether they're going to have to find some way to, um, to explain it away, uh, that's a tactical decision they're going to have to make. All right. Tim Parlatore, thank you so much. Good to have you as always. And coming up next, a provocative question. Does Trump stand a better chance at a plea deal given that so much of this evidence is classified? We'll get into some of those technicalities next. Plus, we will fact check some of the wild claims that RFK Jr. made on Joe Rogan's podcast. Money for the bankers, you know, the bankers. In the classified documents case against Donald Trump, prosecutors and defense lawyers appear to be gearing up for a major fight before this trial even makes it to a courtroom. At issue here is how to show this sensitive material to a jury and to the public. The former president's lawyers have already started this process of obtaining security clearances so they can get started in this case. And this latest indictment is already having an impact on voter sentiment. A new CNN poll shows that 47 percent of Republican voters say that Trump remains their first choice for the party's nomination. But that is actually down from the 53 percent that it was in May. Also of note, the share of GOP voters who say they would not support Trump under any circumstances has jumped from 16 now to 23% in just the last month. Back with me, Laura Coates, Bradley Moss, and Rena Shaw. And uh, Bradley, I, I want to talk to you about the, the complications with the classified documents at issues here. At issue here, normally the DOJ and the government, they don't like to take these cases to court because they're very, very sensitive. So do you think that they still may want to at some point get to a plea here to avoid having to show off classified documents or get in fights with agencies about what they can show and what they can't? 
I'm sure the Justice Department would happily have a discussion about a plea deal with Mr. Trump. And as uh, your former guest said, I have no reason to believe Mr. Trump is in any way interested in a plea deal. What will be interesting to see as they go through the classified discovery and we get a sense of where the trial would go and what, how they would present this evidence and how they would handle you know, presenting to the jury, if there would be issues of providing substitutions or summaries instead of the actual documents, is how much Jack Smith coordinated in advance with the other elements of the, of the government, particularly the intelligence community, saying, there's all these documents we got. I need a select group I can actually present at trial, and you guys won't lose it. Yeah, and actually, there's some indications that maybe that kind of already happened because mm-hmm. they only charged 38 of the document, not all of the possible... 31. 31, I'm sorry. Not all of the possible documents in the universe. Of course. And the reason you want to do that is because you have the speedy trial rights, right? You know that you have to call ready. The indictment process is already lengthy. Then you've got the moment you go before a judge and say, listen, I know the talking point's going to be we're going involved in election interference. This is a candidate. We're asking for 21 days of that person likely being off the campaign trail for the presentation of our evidence alone. They've contemplated already the idea that DOJ has a rule not to obviously interfere with an election. Now, we are in a, a good window for that right now, knowing there's an August trial date, which likely will get right. continued. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's not going to happen in August, but so yeah. don't cancel your summer plans. Trips, <laughs> right. everyone. But the question is what the juries can see. And the jury does not have to actually have a national security clearance to actually see these documents. Now, the double-edged sword here, Abby, is on the one hand, if I show the jury as a prosecutor the documents, I run the risk of the the jury saying, well, if you can show me, what big deal could this possibly have been in the long run? On the other hand, if I don't, I leave more than a seed of reasonable doubt able to be planted as to whether I actually can make my case. Well, Laura brought up, Rena, an an interesting point, and I was talking to Tim Parlatori about this too. Obviously, according to the Washington Post, Trump rebuffed efforts by his lawyers to accommodate DOJ early in this process. But as a candidate, I mean, is it really in his best interest to get to an actual trial here? You know, if I read that report correctly, uh, they also suggested he settle. But for Trump, settling would be seen as losing. And I don't know if former President Trump was a Frank, Frank Sinatra fan, but I think he's always <laughs> living up to the words of I did it my way, because that's just Trump for you. And it was the end, inauguration song, yes, right? Was. You know? He danced to it. He danced hey, to listen, it. Go. That was got a distant a good, memory for me. Memory. <laughs> you know, he will put his spin on everything. And he understands that that is going to win him the hearts and minds of Republicans. Because but look at those rally around him. that we just talked sure. about. I mean, does that say anything to you? You know, I I am hesitant to look at those polls right now because I see the wind shifting and I see the playbook has constantly won out for Trump. It's a tired one, but it's the one that's worked for seven years where he will spin it. He said, I did nothing wrong here. And somehow that seeps down into the consciousness of your average voter. And the average Republican voter is more likely to believe that line nowadays. And we should note, he may be going down a little bit, but no one else is really actually gaining on him. So that's kind of where the race stands right now. Uh, but we're going to talk about something a little bit different now. RFK Jr., he's running uh, for president on the Democratic side. He's also an anti-vaxxer, and he's under fire again for spreading even more misinformation on a controversial podcast. The Spanish flu was vaccine-induced flu. The, the, the deaths were uh, vaccine-induced, but the, the de- originally they said it was a flu. And that was not the only wild claim. In our, our in-house fact-checker has a list, and he'll come with it next. (music) 
You may have seen in recent days a debate about an appearance by Democratic presidential candidate RFK Jr. on Joe Rogan's podcast. But as expected, he made a lot of wild and frankly dangerous claims, so much so that YouTube actually removed the video from its platform. So CNN's Daniel Dale watched uh, to fact check some of that interview. Daniel, uh, we are always glad to have you on things like this. What did you find exactly? I found a whole lot of nonsense, frankly, from Mr. Kennedy. He repeated his completely baseless claims about vaccines supposedly causing autism. He added a bunch of more obscure wrongness about everything from Ebola to Wi-Fi, stuff that is frankly so bizarre and out there, Abby, it, it is not even worth explaining it just to debunk it. Something that stood out to me, though, was how badly he distorted the findings of actual experts. Like he mentioned academic study after academic study. But if you go read those studies yourself, as I did, you'll find he was not accurate describing what the studies actually said. That's uh, not shocking at all, I think, if you're familiar with RFK Jr. But I do want to ask you also about this dramatic claim that he made that Dr. Anthony Fauci says that the Spanish flu epidemic of the early 20th century was not caused by a flu virus at all. Listen. The Spanish flu was not a virus. And even... um, Fauci now acknowledges that, and they, you know, there's there's good evidence that the Spanish flu, there's there's you know not not a definitive, but very very strong evidence. Uh, the Spanish flu was vaccine induced flu. The, the, the deaths were uh, vaccine induced, but the the de- originally they said it was a flu, but when they've gone back and actually they have all the, sam- the samples from thousands of people, they died from bacteriological uh, pneumonia. So, Daniel, is any of that true? It's not. None of this is true, Abby. And Dr. Fauci absolutely didn't say what Kennedy claims he said. Here is the reality. The Spanish flu pandemic was caused by an H1N1 flu virus, not a vaccine. Dr. Fauci never disputed that. What Fauci and his colleagues wrote in a paper in 2008 was that most most of the deaths during this pandemic were not caused by the Spanish flu virus alone, but rather from a secondary bacterial infection, pneumonia, that people got after being weakened by that flu virus. The key part there, Abby, is after weakened by the flu virus. Fauci wasn't denying the flu existed. Here's what Fauci said at the time this paper came out in 2008. He said, the weight of the evidence we examined from both historical and modern analyses of the 1918 influenza pandemic favors a scenario in which viral damage followed by bacterial pneumonia led to the vast majority of deaths. In essence, the virus landed the first blow while bacteria delivered the knockout punch. This one-two punch sequence is super common with flu viruses. I spoke to Vanderbilt infection infectious disease specialist, Dr. William Schaffner today. He told me that Kennedy's claim uh, that there's no flu at all. He said there's either just misunderstanding because he doesn't understand the science or there's willful misunderstanding here. And honestly, Abby, this Spanish flu wasn't a flu virus claim is not the only wildly inaccurate thing Mr. Kennedy said in this part of the interview alone. He went on to say that he doesn't know for sure, but some people say maybe the Spanish flu era bacterial infections were caused by, wait for it, people wearing masks. This is like chain email level nonsense that is spread on anti-vax and anti-mask social media and web forums. And it's just frankly, completely imaginary. All right. Well, I want to look at one claim that RFK Jr. made about the cost of the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions. Listen to this one. So we got lots of money for the, for the military industrial complex, lots of money for the bankers, you know, the banksters. But we're starving Americans to death. 
starving them. And his, because of all the inflation, we spent $16 trillion on the lockdown. We wasted, got nothing for it. All right, so what are the facts on that one? So Mr. Kennedy did not say where he got this absurd claim that we spent $16 trillion on pandemic lockdowns, but there is a COVID-related paper by two prominent Harvard professors that used a $16 trillion figure Except here's the key thing, Abby. That paper is not about so-called lockdowns whatsoever. It doesn't even mention lockdowns. So what is that 16 trillion figure actually? Well, it's the author's very rough estimate. This was in late 2020 for the cost to the U.S. of COVID itself. More than half of that estimated 16 trillion cost was from people dying prematurely of COVID, suffering long-term health issues, having mental health issues. The rest was estimated lost economic output over a decade. So you can argue that maybe some of this lost output would be because of restrictions. You can call them lockdowns, but certainly not all of it. And again, more than half is about the health impacts of the virus. I reached out to the paper's authors, Abby, about this claim that we spent $16 trillion on lockdowns in particular. And one of them, uh, Harvard economics professor David Cutler responded, quote, he's entirely incorrect. That was the cost of COVID, not the cost of lockdowns. We were very clear about that in the analysis, end quote. Apparently not clear enough. Yeah, I mean, apparently it's not clear enough, but it's so good to have you on this, Daniel Dale, uh, to kind of give folks the facts as they evaluate the candidates out there. Thank you very much. And thank you all for joining us tonight. CNN Tonight with Allison Camerata starts right now. Hey, Abby, great to see you. Thank you, you very much. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Rescuers think they've got about 30 hours left before the air supply runs out for five people on board that missing submersible. The sub vanished somewhere in the North Atlantic on Sunday after heading out to see the site of the shipwrecked Titanic, nearly 13,000 feet below the surface. There are plenty of questions tonight about what went wrong and if any corners were cut with safety precautions. So in just a moment, I'll speak to a team of experts in deep sea searches. Also tonight, Hunter Biden's plea deal. The president's son will plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors and is reportedly negotiating a deal with federal prosecutors to resolve his felony gun charge. Would any of us have been offered the same deal? We have a reality check for you tonight. And a new CNN poll shows former President Trump's support is slipping following his indictment for mishandling those top secret documents. We'll show you those new numbers. But let's begin with the search mission for that missing submersible with five people on board and time running out. Miguel Marquez is in Newfoundland tonight with the latest on the search. Miguel. Allison, I'm going to show you what's happening here on the ground in St. John's right now. This is the Horizon Arctic. This is the sister ship to the, the Polar Prince that took the submersible out there, the Titan submersible out there. Uh, that's what it launched off of. And it is now that the Polar Prince is now... Uh, taking part in the search for the submersible. There are three C-17 big military cargo jets that have landed here in St. John's. They have tons of gear to bring on to this ship, we believe, that will then poured out. A, a Canadian Coast Guard ship left earlier today and is on its way to the search area. There are planes in the air, planes to not only look on the surface, but planes to drop buoys and listen for uh, anything coming from that submersible. Uh, submersible. The, the ships are doing that as well, at least the Polar Prince is. Uh, the concern here is the easy part of this operation should be locating that ship, hearing a ping from it, an emergency beacon of some sort. 
they have not been able to hear anything from the ship uh, so far. It is extremely, the pressure is extremely great that deep down. It is extremely cold uh, and they are running out of oxygen. And the fact that they cannot find that ship yet or that, that submersible yet is a great concern because the hard part will be once they find it, getting it uh, secured and hopefully bringing those people home to safety. Allison. Miguel, thank you very much for all of that. Let's bring in our experts now. Here with me tonight, we have Tim Taylor, an expert in deep water searches. Christine Dennison, who plans and runs expeditions like this one. Also, Bill Willard, who's traveled down to the Titanic site twice and has been friends with Paul-Henri Narjolet, one of the missing people for more than two decades. Thank you all for being here. Uh, so, Bill, let's talk about that. The new equipment that they've just brought in. Um, what's the plan? To send a robot down and look around? Yes. Uh, it, a remote-operated vehicle is basically a tethered vehicle that, that's run down on a cable and operated by a man on the ship to, to drive around with cameras and sonar and other equipment to try to locate them. But at the moment, they don't have one that can go down 13,000 feet. Correct. My understanding is they have one on site. It only goes to uh, 3,000 meters. They're in 3,800 meters. Uh, they have another one uh, last I heard, they, from my sources, they have a French ship that's underway with an ROV on board that can hit 6,000 meters. Meaning so, 13,000 feet. We, uh, much deeper than that. So they, they got the capability. Um, these things are not readily available, not reg- sitting there waiting to go. So this is, this is a good thing that they got somebody that may be there with capabilities before the time runs out. Um, everyone, we have some new information coming into our newsroom about this right now. In fact, the, an internal U.S. Uh, memo finds that crews searching have heard banging sounds every half an hour during their search. So this is the crews who have been searching for the submissible heard this every 30 minutes today and four hours later after additional sonar devices were deployed, the banging was still heard. Unclear what the banging was or for how long it had been going. Um, A subsequent update Tuesday night suggested more sounds were heard, though those were not described as banging. Additional acoustic feedback was heard and will assist in vectoring surface assets and also indicating continued hope of survivors. So that's the latest update, Christine. I mean, obviously that is hopeful, though vague. Um, You plan, you know, uh, expeditions like this, obviously. These are not for uh, faint of heart people. (laughs) Um, And I assume that many sort of millionaires or billionaires, as we know, are on this one, um, like to do things like this. But you say that you try to prepare for every contingency. So what would you have done differently with this? Well, my, my expertise in running for 20-some-odd years has been working in the polar regions, in the high Arctic. And that is very remote. Uh, we're underwater. We're not, as, we're not nearly as deep. But, but it comes down to really mitigating its risk assessment and mitigating risk um, for yourself. Um, as a company owner and as an expedition leader, I, I have to concern myself with the obvious litigation, uh, potential litigation, liability and also look out for my clients. And at the end of the day, it's taking care of clients. It's people that entrust their life to you. And so this is a very, very big undertaking for them. And I I hope that everything was in place um, that they needed. Of course. Um, Bill, as we mentioned, you are friends with um, uh, Paul Henri and have been for... PH, what, yes. Yes, for more than... You call him PH. PH. Okay. Um, 
what about this development that we are just getting, this breaking news that they've that the crews have heard these banging sounds every 30 minutes and that it's after they these sonar devices were deployed? What does that tell you? As you, you said, if this is a, an accurate story, then it is a tremendous amount of hope. Um, the time interval of 30 minutes does suggest that it's been made. And uh, that is something that PH would do is every. Oh, Bill, I think we've lost you. Be try to be located. Okay, hold on. Sorry, Bill, we lost you for a second there. You're saying that that the interval of every 30 minutes, why does that tell you that it's something that PH would do? It's man-made. Um, when you're down there, it's going to be dark. It's going to be cold. Um, you're going to try to send out some way to be noticed. Mm. Um, Bill, we'll fix that because you're freezing a little bit. We'll fix that and get that back to you. Tim, what do you think? Does this give you new hope? I, I agree with him. Uh, PH, I know PH not as well as his friend, and I actually met him here on CNN 10 years ago on Flight 370. We were on set together, and we, we kept in touch over the years. So uh, I, I would agree. He would... They would be resourceful. They would be MacGyvering this. They would. They need to be heard. Uh, acoustic pinger, which I question why it's not on this ship. They're making their own acoustic pinger if this is the case. They're banging on the hull and sending out signals. And if they're doing it on, on a regular basis, I'm sure it, exactly what he would say is that it, it is irregular 30-minute intervals is, is, a, is a man-made thing. It's not a natural occurrence. It doesn't happen like that in nature. And given that this was picked up on these uh, acoustic feedback machines, that um, because now there's all these surface assets, is there anything else it could be? Yeah, well, it could be, it could be the Titanic and, and something in the current drifting and banging. But 30 minutes, every 30 minutes, every, every time... You know, it, it's a, it, it is a good sign of hope. So, uh, it, yeah. yeah. Um, Bill, are you back with us yet? Um, I'm here. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, Bill, uh, you have gone down twice to this site that they were trying to... No, ma'am. To- I've, been to the wreck, I've been to the wreck site twice, but I've not dived down in Nautil. Um, but I've been out there at two different expeditions. Oh, so and you've PH been... PH led both of them. Meaning you've been out on top of the water and you haven't gone all the way down? That is correct. Okay, because we had um, PH, as you say, on in 2014. He was talking to uh, our Bill Weir, and he was explaining what it looked like down there. So I just want to play this for everybody. On the Titanic, you have two big parts of the Titanic, but there is a huge uh, debris field where you can find a lot of things, like uh, going from China to uh, piece of the wreck, anything like that. And it's the same condition, of course, it's totally dark and you have to use uh, some light and uh, to see anything. So Bill, as you can hear him saying there, it's totally dark. It's hard to see anything. You have to use special lights. So how will they, let's say that they have, let's say at some point in the next 30 hours, they can locate where the submersible is. How would they be able to actually spot it? How would they be able to find it? The ROV will have some kinds of lights that will be shining in front of it so that it could illuminate an image that's or a, something that's in front of it. So they would be able to detect that through their open porthole that they have, through the opening that they have to look out. They would see that coming towards them, and that would give them hope also. And, of course, um, uh, 
this ROV that's approaching them, I would have it do two things. The first thing I would have it do is secure a tether of some sort onto the the Titan so that they could put up. But then I would go a step further and see if the ROV could go around and release the ballast. If it could release the ballast of that submersible, then um, you've got Archimedes working with you and it's going to start lifting on its own very quickly. And it'll still take two hours to get to the surface. Um, but inside, they will um, know that they're on their way. Tim, will this banging help them narrow the search? Yes. Yes, they can triangulate on noise. Again, it's only happening every 30 minutes. They, they only have a, a, a data update every 30 minutes. So if it was happening every minute, it would be a lot easier and a lot faster. I will, I will add to him, the camera and the lights are on the ROV, but they will be also equipped with forward-looking sonar. They're going to be able to look out two, 300 yards, maybe more, depending on how far they are off the bottom, and look with sonar and, and scan. So they, they will be able to find a large object like the submarine and the wreck, obviously, uh, but with eyes using sound. So they, they, will have, they, will have, uh, they will have more tools than just a camera and lights to look around. Down. Christine, I know that earlier today, before we got this news that they had been hearing some banging, um, that you were, I think it's fair to say, losing hope? I was. I think, I think we have to remember that we're still not there yet. If we can locate them, if it is them, what condition are they in? They have to be stressed. They're obviously very cold. They're in the dark. And we still have to get them to the surface because, remember, they have been bolted in there. So when you bring that sub to the surface, you have to release them. Uh, And when you say they've been bolted in there from the outside, people have bolted them and they don't have any escape hatch. They have none. We have to bring them to the surface. You have to secure all the vehicles and then you have to release them from this submersible. And and obviously they, they have been through a tremendous amount. You can expect that psychologically, physically, they are not at optimum capacity. And and that is, I I still hold that hope. This is wonderful, wonderful breaking news, but we're not clear yet. There's so many things that could still go wrong. And and I think that's very important to note and very important to take very seriously and, and not lose sight of the fact that we have a recovery mission. And just to recap for everybody, crews searching for the submersible heard banging sounds every 30 minutes today and they, after they used additional sonar devices, the banging was still heard. This is according to an internal government memo. Uh, this is an update on the search. It's unclear when the banging was heard today or for how long, based on the memo. Um, it suggested then there were more sounds heard Tuesday night, though that was not described as banging. Quote, additional acoustic feedback was heard and will assist in vectoring surface assets and also indicating continued hope of survivors. Tim, what's your... Hope level at this hour. A little higher than it was when I started the show. All right. So um, there's a lot of work to be done if they are there, if if they're in any type of shape. We don't know what happened in the first place. Are they entangled in the wreck? Finding them is the first thing. Extricating them, bringing them to the top, as, as, as was stated a second ago, is a whole other matter. You don't know what you're going to run into yet. And then there's going to be a whole other set of problems that are going to have to be solved in very short order. Yeah. And, and we don't know if we even have the assets to do that on board. But Bill, very quickly, um, what's your level of hope now? Very, very, very strong. We are hoping for the best. Um, this is good news. The fact that there are several rescue vehicles either on site or approaching the site is also um, strong hope. All of the, the Titanic community that supports and loves PH Nargelay. Yeah. 
Folks, we're going to obviously keep you around and uh, keep in touch with you as we get more information. So we'll stay on the story of this missing submersible. We'll bring you an update later in the show. Okay, other news. Donald Trump used to say that he only hires the best people, but that's not what he calls them anymore. You and your White House called your White House chief of staff, John Kelly, weak and ineffective and born with a very small brain. You called your acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, a born loser. You called your first secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, dumb as a rock. And your first defense secretary, James Mattis, the world's most overrated general. You called your White House press secretary, Kayla Kennedy, milquetoast. And multiple times you've referred to your transportation secretary, Elaine Chao, as Mitch McConnell's China-loving wife. So... Why did you hire all of them in the first place? All right, let's find out what he calls Anthony Scaramucci, who's walking out right now. We'll talk about that. And I sort of, I sort of feel left out. You, <laughs> you feel left, left out. <laughs> we'll see if you're left out. We'll yeah, talk no. about Donald uh, Trump's new poll numbers next. New CNN polling finds that Donald Trump's uh, legal troubles are hurting his approval numbers. Let's bring in our panel. We have CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers, former Trump White House communications director Anthony Scaramucci, podcast host Coleman Hughes, and Rolling Stone columnist Jay Michelson. Great to have all of you here. Okay, so let's look at the polling numbers, Anthony. It says here that uh, Donald Trump's favorable numbers, this is among Republicans, okay, and Republican-leaning voters. So in May, they were 77% approval, now 67 unfavorable. In May was 18%, now 27%. And then... Um, in terms of given the federal charges, this is what was asked, Trump should end his campaign. 90% of Democrats, no surprise, say yes. 62% of independents say yes. 27% of Republicans. What do you make of all that? I think it's a s- small dent. I don't think it's a big enough dent yet. Uh, but if those numbers really start to move, he'll drop out of the race. He will not be able to handle a eviscerating defeat in Iowa or New Hampshire or South but he won't Carolina. drop out before the Iowa or the New Hampshire. Though, with those poll numbers, no. But if you told me he went to 55 percent unfavorable in the Republican Party and you saw somebody like Governor Christie or Governor DeSantis rise in the polls and you saw another indictment or two and you saw him starting to unravel, I mean, I don't know what, what he's doing with his hair, but he's got to get a new hairstyle or something. Really? You see, you I mean, see he's, something he's, has changed in his hair. Oh, oh, come on. He's like physically unraveling. Just take a look at him. Go, go so? back to the Brett Bear tape. Yeah. What part he, is unraveling? You know, well, I mean, he's, he was probably using six cans of hairspray during the campaign. He's probably only using one now. He's got to <laughs> he's got to straighten this out. Well, this is okay. the meter that yeah, you're yeah, using. Well, for, yeah, I like he's, a, he's a very image conscious guy. I mean, there's not enough hairspray going on on that <laughs> raccoon nest. You know, I mean, just being honest. So you can tell that he's unraveling, you know, people that really know him can tell that this thing is starting to come undone on him. Coleman, uh, do you think that this is a momentary sort of dip in his poll numbers and they'll come back? Yeah, I mean, so, I, I mean, first of all, I think this dip is probably happening because people are seeing not just the indictment itself, but how he is reacting to the indictment, right? He is literally incriminating himself on camera. He's like, his, his lawyers must be at home just slapping their foreheads, just having, you know, having strokes because their client is, is making them crazy. I mean, and this is, uh, th- this is the kind of thing that even looks bad to his base. And he, uh, you know, famously, he said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. But it, it, it remains to be seen whether he can basically make no ever efforts to avoid prison without pissing off his, his base. 
Um, Jen, Chris Christie said the same thing, that he felt that he was, that Donald Trump was incriminating himself in this Brett Baer interview. So let me play for you the moment that Chris Christie was talking about that he says that Donald Trump incriminated himself about the classified documents. Here's Donald Trump. Why not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Is that incriminating? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, recordings are gold for prosecutors anyway, right? And he's basically now thrown out a new defense that he really hasn't used before, the I was looking through the boxes and didn't have time to get through them defense, uh, which is ridiculous on its face, completely undercut by the facts, uh, and not a legal defense in any event. So it's definitely incriminating. It just says to me, though, that he's now more concerned about the campaign than about the legal case, because I think he's kind of putting all his eggs in the, if I get elected president again, I can get rid of this basket, as opposed to trying to fight it in the courts, where he really is not going to have a good shot at it because of the strength of the case. This has to be an encouraging moment, right? I mean, I think if we look at that independence number in particular, the favorable numbers that you, that you just put out there, most Republicans are reasonable people, right? They may have I may have different views from someone on the conservative side of the aisle, but this movement is becoming one of, and I say this as a rabbi, of spiritual darkness. This is a movement that he is now entirely a cult of personality driven by rage, grievance, and animus. And you can see this again and again and again when you look at some of the rallies on his base. This is not where the center of America is. Most Americans, we may disagree on a lot of issues, but we're basically reasonable people. And as these things, to me, I think, you know, Coleman's exactly right, you know, this, this these, it's like not just the death of a thousand blows, the picture of the files in the bathroom. This is clearly well beyond where sort of the vast middle of America is, even if Trump's sort of hardcore base stands by him. He was too busy to go through the boxes oh, and I mean, he wanted to sort out his golf shirt shirts. It's, it's obviously incriminating, but I, I, I just think that, again, this is just my opinion, his legal staff, the good ones are departing. The ones that he's picking up right now are yesing him. And he's in a he's in a very tough spot and he's going to do what he usually does is completely rely on himself and go with his intuition as opposed to great legal advice. And it's going to lead to his downfall. Meaning what? That he's he'll implode. He'll he'll implode. He'll continue to do interviews like that that incriminate him. There'll be more and more recordings of things that he's saying that are nonsensical and that indictment will stick. He will have a small group of people that no matter what will say this is a witch hunt and it's the government going after him and the government is a bunch of bad actors and all the conspiracy tinfoil hat people will stay with him. But the people that Jay's mentioning, they will not. They will eventually flee. And, and, and you know, when it happens, people will be like, why did it take so long? But when it happens, it happens in a waterfall. It doesn't happen gradually. It'll just, he'll go over... He'll be in that little barrel going over Niagara Falls, and people are like, okay, that was pretty predictable. <laughs> Anthony's given us some good visuals, I feel, in his, uh, <laughs> in his metaphors that he's using. Well, here. if Please, anyone at yeah. the table, Please. he's been the closest. Yes, absolutely. You know, he'll get some hairspray <laughs> ads out of this. You know, I mean, the guy needs help. <laughs> Thank you all very much for this. Meanwhile, Republicans say that Hunter Biden got a sweetheart deal and a slap on the wrist. So what would the punishment be for the rest of us? We've got a reality check next. And we've got more to come on our breaking news on the search for the missing sub. Banging sounds have now been heard every 30 minutes during the search today. We'll have more coming up.
President Biden's son, Hunter, will plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors and is reportedly striking a deal with federal prosecutors to resolve a felony gun charge. Republicans call it a sweetheart deal. Is that true? John Avalon's got our reality check tonight. John. So look, Allie, after an uncommonly long five-year investigation, Hunter Biden will plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors while striking a deal to resolve a felony gun possession charge. This is not the outcome that Republicans were hoping for. It continues to show the two-tier system in America. This DOJ continues to hunt Republicans and protect Democrats. One set of rules for Republicans and one set of rules for Democrats. Yeah, there's a lot of doubling down on this idea of a legal double standard, especially in the wake of Donald Trump's 37-count indictment. But does that stack up to the facts? Well, the investigation first was conducted by a Trump appointee, U.S. Attorney David Weiss of Delaware, specifically to reduce concern about politicized results. But, of course, Hunter Biden has been demonized by the right pretty thoroughly. To use just one measure, get this, a LexisNexis search found that He was mentioned more than 2,200 times on Fox News between 2020 and 2022. For doing the math at home, that's well over once a day. So don't believe the hype. Instead, look at the comps. Now, we know that other Americans who've taken home classified national security documents often receive stiff prison sentences. It happened in several cases recently, as detailed by CNN's Daniel Dale. But willful failure to pay income tax with a guilty plea? often does not result in prison time, especially if the money's been paid back with interest. And that's the deal with Hunter Biden's case. He underpaid the IRS by at least $100,000 in both 2017 and 2018, when he was admittedly a crack cocaine addict. He has since paid up and will receive probation. Now, the gun charge is a little bit stranger, but bear with me. Basically, Hunter Biden was charged with possessing a gun when he was a drug addict. That is illegal, but rarely charged standalone unless the gun is used in a separate crime. Get this, over six months from October 22 to March of this year, federal prosecutors filed over 3,800 cases of unlawful possession of a firearm. It's according to a database compiled by Syracuse University. But in only 3% of the time, failing to make a false statement to acquire the gun related to the lead charge. So look, you can't reason someone out of something they weren't reasoned into, as the Irish author Jonathan Swift once wrote. But here's the big picture. The fact that son of the president was investigated by the government and charged is actually evidence that no one is above the law in America. That's a good thing. And that's your reality check. John, thank you very much. We'll check in with you shortly. My panel is back quickly. So, Jen, just to be clear, just so I understand what John was saying, if any of us underpaid our taxes by $100,000 for two years in a row, we would also get probation or we would get a stricter sentence? Honestly, I'm not even sure you would be investigated and charged in the first place. There's a very good argument here that were Hunter Biden not the president's son, no one would have been taking a look at him for all sorts of stuff that he's done in the first place. But putting that aside, uh, yes, you would have a very good chance of getting probation if you paid back the money immediately, as Hunter Biden did. And think about this as well, because people were talking about this at the time of the investigation. Hunter Biden was a, a crack cocaine addict at the time of the offense conduct. That means if you are a prosecutor and you're thinking about taking this case to trial, felony trial, can you prove the mens rea to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury, right? That's a proof question. That's an issue for them. And so as you're thinking about this case and how you charge it, that's another reason to think about trying to get a plea deal here, which is one of the reasons you saw a misdemeanor. 
So, Jay, do you feel that Republicans will no longer be worked up in a lather about Hunter Biden? I mean, for years now, the Republicans have been trying to make Hunter Biden out to be Tony Soprano. He's really Brendan Fallon. The guy is, he's a nebbish. It's, I, we should have what we could say in Yiddish, Rachmanis. We should have compassion. The guy, he lost his brother. He fell into addiction. He's had a, he, you know, he clearly, he broke the law. And I agree with John, you know, the fact that no one's above the law. This is a good thing. At the same time, the fact that this man who, may, who has made a bunch of mistakes and has shown very poor judgment that this is the person who is at the center of these wild conspiracy theories uh, by one of the two major parties in the country. That's, to me, what's most shameful. Thank you both very much. All right, meanwhile, coming up, more on our breaking news on the search for the missing sub, banging sounds heard every 30 minutes during the search today. What that means? We'll have more on our breaking news. Breaking news tonight on the massive search operation to find that submersible with five people on board that went missing Sunday on a trip to view the wreckage of the Titanic. There is a new development in the past hour. Crews searching for the sub reportedly heard today banging sounds at 30-minute intervals. Then, after additional sonar devices were deployed, banging was still heard. Okay, This is according to an internal U.S. government memo. It was unclear exactly what time this banging was heard. A subsequent update sent tonight suggested more sounds were heard, though they were not described as banging. I want to bring in deep sea explorer and oceanographer David Gallo. David, thank you very much for being here. What does this development tell you? Well, immediately the first thing is it uh, gets your hopes uh, go skyrocketing up, but also it makes you think that, wow, you know, time is really now against us. So it really encourages you to do something, but do it quickly Uh, because, you know, anyway, you have to be, there's a little bit of caution here because if you remember Malaysian Air, uh, there were all sorts of bangs and beeps and pops heard uh, that were positively this or that and turned out to be none of those things. Uh, I'm not taking away from this, but you know, it gets the hopes of the families and loved ones up, uh, and it does cause an, an upbeat in in terms of let's get this uh, show underway. Um, so I'm I'm looking at it as a very positive sign. And now the next question is how how do we find out and uh, how do we investigate right away yeah. about what and these David, sounds maybe? What about what about the every thirty minute interval? What does that tell you? I don't know. You know, I'm thinking PH, my, my dear, my closest friend and uh, colleague is out there on that sub and uh, he knows what he's doing. And maybe he figured that that's the best way to have them recognize where they are is to uh, yeah. make sounds every 30 minutes. Uh, and he would have figured that out. But that's the way PH was, that this is the best instead of constant clinging, it's best to save energy and to do it that way. Um, you, yeah, you're not the only person who has said that. We, we just had another friend of his on um, who said that Paul Henri, who you call PH, would be doing something uh, methodical in, in that way. Positively. And so, positively. so does this help? Nar- I imagine this helps narrow the search. But do you have any sense of to, I mean, we had heard earlier today it was the search was the size of the state of Connecticut. Does this change yeah. that? I don't know where that came from. I mean, if they think that's a search area, that's incredibly large. I think it would be a lot smaller than that, much smaller than that, um, uh, in my mind. But uh, maybe they thought it would drift further. But it, the le- lesson we learned with Air, Air France and other uh, sunken ships is that the best place to look is where the last known position 
And in this case, it was right above the Titanic wreck site. So, uh, and the question is, where are those bangs coming from? Are they also coming from that area or are they moving around the ocean? I, I get a little bit uh, agitated when, if they put something like that out, what do they do to investigate the location of those bangs? Not just that they heard them, but from where? And that seems like the kind of thing a Navy submarine hunter uh, should be able to do to locate where that sound is coming from. So, um, but yeah. the fact that it came up government memo, and I've started hearing about it about two hours ago. A lot of credible people have said this is a real deal. Um, yeah, so I hear you. It's yeah. not just a witness. I mean, this is from a U.S. government memo. And so very quickly, time is of the essence, of course. they Estimates are that they have 30 hours left of basically an oxygen supply. And so what needs to happen right now? And do they have the equipment to do it? Uh, I, be, I don't know exactly what's out there. Uh, I've heard there's a remotely operated vehicles and the very least you need to uh, get something with a camera and, uh, probably with some sort of manipulator arms that can grab and, uh, and then start moving. You know, the first things to do is to identify where the bangs are coming from and if they're continue. Uh, second thing to do would be to move some of the, uh, remotely operated vehicles to that area and get them in the water. And there may be nothing there, but in case there is something there, you don't want to have to wait a day to get the, you know, let's get the ships out there right away. And uh, uh, that's, those are the first, find it, and then uh, document what the issue is, and then uh, prepare to retrieve what's there. Yeah, it sounds like that is what they're working on right now. Um, well, David, yeah. thank you very much. I know how nerve-wracking this is for you, uh, that your dear friend is on yeah. there. Um, we will check back yeah. with you. Thank you very much. Okay, Allison. Okay. Thank you. Okay, other news. Donald Trump might not be Joe Biden's biggest headache in 2024. It could be a different candidate. It could be a Democrat. We're going to show you the proof. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is speaking out tonight about the war in Ukraine and calling on the U.S. to stop, in his words, provocations of Russia. I abhor... Russia's brutal and bloody invasion of that nation. But we must understand that our government has also contributed to its circumstances through repeated, deliberate provocations of Russia going back to the 1990s. Is RFK Jr. presenting a problem for Joe Biden? My panel is back. Coleman, um, RFK Jr.'s poll numbers are at 20% right now. So Biden's at 60%. Mm. RFK Jr., 20%, Marianne Williamson, 8%, someone else, 8%. So I know that you you think that Democrats shouldn't sort of laugh this off. Yeah, no, I, I don't think Democrats should. I think Democrats, I worry, will make a similar mistake that was made with Trump, which is he seems like a clown. He's saying all this crazy stuff. He's an outsider. His fans seem taken in by misinformation. Let's just wish that this goes away by not taking it seriously. And then we're all blindsided. Right, and what might was. happen if they don't take him seriously? Well, what, what, I, I think, frankly, he appeals to a lot of people, and we should make an, a serious effort to understand why. Right? Obviously, I watched the whole I, I watched the whole Joe Rogan episode. A lot of his ideas are just absolutely kooky, unfounded. Right? But he's also speaking to a very real uh, resentment that people feel of the government's handling of COVID. And you know, we know uh, the pharmaceutical industry is the number one lobbyer. Um, and 
you know, the CDC, the FDA, NIH. Unfortunately, there's a revolving door and regulatory capture and corruption that's legal. And people feel enormous resentment about how that led to policies that were heavy handed. And RFK is speaking to that. So Democrats could do one of two things. They can just focus on his like really, you know, looniest claims and just dismiss this guy's crazy. Or they could come up with a, a counter narrative that's like, we care about that stuff too, but we have a better way to solve it. Thoughts? Well, one way they could do it is talk about, you know, the fact the Biden administration has been pushing to lower prescription drug costs against uh, the, the, the wishes of, of, of said drug companies. But look, it's clear, polling has shown for a long time, that there is a desire for an alternative to Joe Biden for a variety of different reasons among Democrats. His numbers are not as high as they should be for a typical incumbent president. Um, I don't think that uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. is the solution to that. The fact he's getting pumped up, particularly by folks on the right, as a credible alternative to Joe Biden, I think speaks to uh, who he most appeals to. That doesn't mean there's not Venn diagram overlap. There were Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump fans Mm -hmm. in the world. Um, And and so, no, he should not be dismissed, but his claims need to be interrogated in a fact-based way. Mm -hmm. And, And when they are, many of his strongest claims break down upon the slightest bit of scrutiny. But he sounds very convincing because he's inundated himself with this stuff. Well, 2008, a gentleman by the name of Barack Obama was not taken seriously. He was very low in the polls. And the Clintons said, OK, don't attack him. He'll be our HUD secretary someday. I went on to become president. Uh, 2016, Donald Trump not taken seriously by anybody uh, candidates I work for, Scott Walker, Jeb Bush, he'll flame out of the race. He'll say something destructive. We thought the McCain incident was going to cause that. He became the president. I don't think RFK Jr. becomes the president, but he could do heavy damage to the president. He could weaken him going and, into the And into there's the an additional factor. So they got to go after him now. Yeah, the, the, and there's an additional factor, too, which is the halo effect of his name. Not just his last name, but about his father. You know, you know Robert F. Kennedy... Hades holds a, a very sacred place in the memory of this country, in part because he was able to create coalitions, uh, particularly among African-Americans and poor working class whites that no other candidates really been able to cobble together. And the fact that his, of course, uh, he was assassinated 55 years ago this month. Um, and so that itself, I think, lends him uh, an authority on the surface that, you know, you, you should not underestimate at your peril. I like, I, I I like RFK Jr., by the way. I the segregation of the support as I between like people who like the name Kennedy or, or, as Coleman said, people who are actually resonating with the message mm-hmm. uh, and people who just want anyone but Biden. I was actually intrigued by Julian Castro's uh, comments today. Not signaling necessarily a run, but saying, you know, we need the Biden hasn't delivered on these promises, saying the kinds of things that a primary opponent starts to say. I mean, it seems to me that a rational, actual Democrat running against Joe Biden might have a, a real chance. But do you but, think RFK Jr. does hurt Biden somehow? I mean, the, his, his posters say I'm a Kennedy Democrat. Like, that's good advertising. But beneath that advertising is someone who's way out of step with the Democrat Party, Democratic Party. On He's already election. hurting. He's already hurting. How? He's very likable, and he has a message that's reaching a demography that the president needs. And if he gets 10, 12, 15, 20 percent of the vote, uh, the Republicans will say, you know, this guy's weak, even in his own base. And you could get a strange candidate on the Republican side that goes after the RFK people. It's not impossible. That, I think, is actually the bigger threat, that, right? That's the, the crossover. Yeah. 
We got Bernie Sanders voters, by the way, in 2016. Mainstreaming of like wild anti-vax conspiracy theories, the mainstreaming of this kind of both sidesing on Russia, Ukraine. That I think is exactly right. This lends ammunition to a future Republican candidate. Yeah, this is this is the 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 code pink Donald Trump overlap on foreign policy, which which we you know. But but the framing of of I'm a Kennedy Democrat speaks to something different. That tradition means to people a certain patriotic liberalism um, that I think is is open. And Bob, this candidate's uh, policies don't actually back up. But the fact he's got 20 percent does speak to a certain looks softness in Joe Biden's approval rate. It, it, there's a he softness. looks Kennedy-esque on camera. Well, he does. Yeah, and you he, can look and like he whatever you he want. He seems strong. And, 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 and he Sometimes comes across not, much John, stronger you know. and much more, uh, you know, able than, than Joe Biden. All right. We'll leave it there, guys. Thank you very much for all of that. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, inside the first-of-its-kind recommendation to screen all adults for anxiety. Tune in for that at 6 a.m. Eastern. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.